So from the early days, we wanted to double down on word of mouth. So the question was, how do we build a product that's so good that customers will recommend us? And to a large extent, we've succeeded. So last quarter, we onboarded a million customers to Wise. We now have 16 million customers. And 70% of them, so 700,000 customers, found out about Wise from a friend. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Fintech Leaders. Coming to you from New York City, I'm your host, Miguel Armasa, and I'm a co-founder of Gilgamesh Ventures, a venture capital fund that backs early-stage fintech entrepreneurs in the U.S., Canada, and Latin America. If you enjoyed this conversation, I invite you to leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your show so more people can learn about fintech leaders. Today, I sit down with Neilan Paris. Chief Product Officer at Wise, a global fintech that helps clients move money around the world. Founded in 2011 by Christo Carman and Tavid Henricos, Wise went public on the London Stock Exchange in 2021, has a current market cap of close to $6 billion, currently serves 16 million people and businesses and processes 9 billion pounds in monthly cross-border transactions across 170 countries in 50 currencies. In this episode, we discuss building through a mission-driven approach and why it's crucial for companies to have very clear missions, how Wise turned a consumer product into a B2B offering and an infrastructure business essentially building three companies inside a single firm, building customer trust through transparency, how this can lead to high customer satisfaction and strong referrals, turning regulatory challenges into opportunities, and a lot more. All right. Well, Nilan, thank you for joining the FinTech Leaders Podcast. Very, very excited for this conversation. And you're joining all the way from, is it London? Yep, I'm in London today, Miguel. Great to be here on the podcast. So how about we get started with just an overview of your background. Let us know how you landed in the in the role of Chief Product Officer at, at WISE. So uh, I'll start from the beginning, I guess. So I... Uh... Studied maths at university mainly because it was the uh, the only thing I could face studying for four years. And post that, I ended up as a consultant at a company called Anderson Consulting. And in those days, which was around 2000, VCs gave money to consultancies to build startups, which is a completely crazy idea. So I, I learned Java in 28 days. And this, for the nerds out there, this was Java 1. This was before JavaScript existed. And I flew around the world building startups, which is a lot of fun, but crash inevitably happened pretty fast afterwards. And then I, I spent about eight, nine years too long in consultancy. But towards the end of my time there, uh, this thing called Web 2.0 happened, which is when broadband penetration really began to kick in across Europe and a lot of retail shops 
in the UK predominantly, were looking to launch an online shop. So the largest retailers in the UK, it's hard to believe this, 10 years ago didn't have a functioning online shop where you could buy stuff, but there was a huge amount of web demand traffic, people looking to buy clothes from Topshop, etc. And I helped these companies launch their online shops. And once I did that, I got to run a couple of online shops. And once I ran a revenue line, I was like, that's what I want to do for the rest of my life. Figure out how to get people to turn up on a product and buy it or use it. Because it was an insanely hard thing to do. And so I've done it ever since. Started off at a mid-sized travel company and then slowly got more and more early stage. I ran a holiday rentals startup, which was the, the Airbnb of Europe before Airbnb became the Airbnb of Europe for a bit. I've advised over 80, 90 startups. And one of those was TransferWise. And I, I got to meet the founders, got intro to them as these guys have got a great product, but no customers about 11 years ago. And the rest is, I guess, history. So through my time here, I helped build out. I started when they were uh, like at the very beginning, when it was just Christo and Tarbot, just two people, and then helped build out all the teams here from hiring the CTO, Harsh, helping hire the CFO. Before that, I was running the budgets to do the financing, which is obviously a bad idea. But for most of my time here, I built the marketing teams here at Wise and the product analytics design and sales teams at Wise. It's interesting. You have about so many companies, close to 100, but you've joined one, right? And that is Wise. So, you know, that must be for a reason. So we'll, we'll talk about that. You know, tell us about the journey of the company, especially, you know, this is a global podcast with a global audience. And at WISE, you have opened operations in a lot of big hubs around the world, like Brazil, Singapore, US. Maybe tell us the story of how you launched some of those companies and how that evolved over time. So most startups, fintech startups, they really focus on one market. Because one market's usually big enough. And if you look around the world at, say, neobanks, every country has a neobank champion, like Nubank in Brazil, Monzo in the UK. You rarely find one that's multi-country. And there, there's a good reason for this. And the reason why is it's really, really hard to expand to another country. It's a whole different regulator. It's a whole different set of payment systems, whole different set of complexity. And usually just focusing on your home market and just taking share there is more than enough for any neobank incumbent. For WISE, we were international from day one. So on day one, we were in two markets because we were sending money between GBP and Euro. So we didn't have a choice. And every time we expanded into a new market, we needed a license in a new market. We needed bank accounts in a new market. We needed a relationship with a regulator in a new market. And so figuring out how to onboard this complexity of being regulated in tens of markets around the world was like in our DNA from day one. And it's led to some really fun stories over time. There's easier markets to get licenses in. So we started off with some money and then there are harder licenses, harder, harder markets. And one fun story I like to share is the story of how we got our license in Singapore. So this was a, a some money license. We 
we had, I think, 30,000 customers on the wait list for Singapore. So we figure out which market to launch by seeing, asking our customers, where, where would you like us to launch? And Singapore was at the top of the list. So we went to MAS, the regulator there, and said, hey, could we get a license to enable citizens of Singapore to send money out with WISE? And they said, sure, here's a license. One thing, you have to physically meet every single customer face-to-face before you can send their money out of Singapore. I'm like, hold on a second. Like, you don't need to do that in the US. You don't need to do that in the UK. You don't need to do that in Australia. They said, in Singapore, you, you need to do that. And actually, most fintechs have passed on Singapore as a consequence. That's a good illustration of our product philosophy here. So we we went to Singapore and we got the license and we opened a small WeWork office and sent our verification KYC team there. And it was a it was an appalling experience from a customer perspective. Like you'd go through the app and you'd sign up and then you get invited in to go see Jack, Jack in a remember Jack in our verification team in WeWork in a WeWork office in Singapore. And customers hated the experience. But the trick and the kind of magic of wise is we got our customers to complain not to us, but to the regulator. And it took us a year of lobbying the regulator before we got the world's first eKYC license in Singapore. And when we get on to talking about how WISE grows, that product in a way in which you could kind of like sign up to WISE from the beach and send money from Singapore was 10 times better than any other money transfer offering in Singapore. And hence was one of the reasons that our growth in Singapore really took off. You know, what? one thing that's interesting me is that I'm sure customers, there was a wait list because it was known that obviously customer service was better than the incumbents, but also pricing, right? And well, I think we're all used to trying out a startup, seeing a great product, seeing that it's cheap. And then, you know, unsurprisingly later on, the costs start going up. That's not really exactly the case. Otherwise, you have managed to to remain very competitive in terms of pricing. Maybe tell us about your approach for providing not just consistently good customer experience, but also staying extremely competitive on pricing across the board. Let's go back a level. I, I go into, um, so what does price even matter? And why do we focus on it at WISE? So from the early days at WISE, when we were thinking about how are we going to grow, we were looking for low-cost distribution channels. As I think of money transfers and money as the ultimate commodity, it's really hard to build like a very expensive service, which has got a great brand. And when you when you move it, you feel really good, but you have less money. Right? So we were looking always for low-cost distribution channels, and the lowest-cost distribution channel is word of mouth. So from the early days, we wanted to double down on word of mouth. So the question was, how do we build a product that's so good that customers will recommend us? And to a large extent, we've succeeded. So last quarter, we onboarded a million customers to WISE. We now have 16 million customers. And 70% of them, so 700,000 customers, found out about WISE from a friend. And the reason why is for the last 10 plus years, We've obsessed about like, what's it going to take to get you, Miguel, to recommend the product? And we use a couple of tools. 
We talk to customers. We're big believers in this net promoter score. Uh, we ask customers, would you recommend us? And when we analyze the data from this, we understand that customers recommend for three reasons. If it's cheap, if it's quick, and if it's easy to use. And what's more than that, it needs to be 10 times cheaper, much, much faster, and much, much easier to use for you to get word of mouth growth. And something I'm very passionate about, building products that grow through word of mouth. So when you zoom into price here, price is the most important thing. So 60% of customers recommend purely on price with money transfer. And so we needed to build a product that was 10 times cheaper than anyone else. And we, we've done that. So banks charge 7% to move money internationally. We charge 0.3. So when you're sending a thousand pounds or a thousand dollars, you save $67 with WISE. You do that four times, you saved over $200. So your question, going back to it, was like, where do we focus on price and cost? And why haven't price and costs gone up? It's because price really matter to our end customers. And every single year for the last 12 years, we've tried really hard to invest in reducing these prices for end customers. And so talking about company building, right, specifically in looking inwards, you mentioned net promoter score. And then I know that this has been extremely important for WISE from the beginning and, and you focus on it. So internally, what kind of resources do you have to strengthen so you can continue focusing on, you know, just securing a, keeping a high NPS? So just zooming into price, speed, and ease of use, I'll go straight into price first. So... If you kind of buy that, customers are going to recommend you if you're much cheaper. And it gets, at the scale we're at, it's also the cheaper you are, the more customers will switch to you. Especially customers moving at this stage, tens of millions of pounds, expecting a really, really cheap price. So how are we so cheap? Well, the first thing is we're not losing money on every transaction. We've been profitable over the last, I think, three to four years now. So therefore, we're so cheap because where our costs are so low. And probably the first big resource we have is a really good understanding of where our costs come from, or put it simply, which customers generate which costs. And every month we kind of allocate all the costs we have in WISE back to the customers that generate them, and those become our prices. And then how do we reduce them? Well, our costs on our PL break into three big chunks and they break into people costs, the cost of risk and partner fees. People costs, I like to think of as the cost of poor quality. So you, you call up customer support if the product isn't clear, or you have to hire lots of people in your operations teams if your product isn't automated. So every year we try to improve the quality of our product as well as automate some of those back-end processes. In terms of risk, the two big risks we run are fraud risks and FX risks. I'll talk you through the FX one just to bring it to life. When you come to WISE, you see a rate and then say you may take three hours or six hours to fund your transfer. That rate is still locked. It doesn't change. So we take a, a risk on that. 
And we've built a bunch of algorithms for understanding which routes, which times of day, which types of customers generate risk. And we, we managed to bring this down and we've actually halved our FX risk costs over the last 12 months. And the final one, probably the most inspiring I think we do in the company to reduce costs is around our partners. And I see other fintechs beginning to do this too. So rather than try to find a cheaper partner to work with, we try to figure out what's the cheapest partner for doing payouts or pay-ins in a market. And that's usually the central bank and getting directly integrated into payment systems. So we now have a bank accounts, I think, at five central banks. So the Bank of England, Australia, Singapore, Hungary, and Europe. And what this means is when you send money from, say, the UK to Singapore, the pay-ins are really fast and cheap. And coming by FPS straight into our Bank of England account. And as soon as it hits that, we do a payout at the other end from our National Bank of Singapore account out through Singapore Fast. And what that means is that is as fast as it can be. That's how we ended up with 50% of our payments being instant. And that's really, really cheap. You can't get cheaper than that. And once you got your head there, you're like, okay, why is this going to go around the world, integrating every single central bank and becoming this money movement layer for money? And that's what we're doing. And that actually has led you to become not just a consumer business, but this this layer that you've built, what you've just described, is actually a business in itself that you have started offering to, to customers, right? Maybe talk about a little bit of that expansion. Yes, we have a business business in Wise as well. We have three products today. Wise Transfer, which I've talked about. We have an account. We like to think of it as the world's best international account for managing your money internationally. It's got 10 billion pounds in deposits, and that's predominantly used by SMBs. SMBs love this product because if you're a business and you want to get paid and you're in the UK and you want to get paid by a customer in Australia, you'd have to give them an invoice and the, the money would turn up someday a certain amount. But with WISE, you can get paid directly in AUD, into an AUD balance. So that's the account. And then what you talked about was our enterprise product, which we call WISE Platform. And that's where we take this transfer product and this account, and we embed them directly in the platforms and banks that consumers and businesses use every day. And we've got something coming on towards, I think, 50 banks that are now live on WISE and offer WISE a branded solution to their own customers, as well as non-banks, everyone from Google Wallet in the US, if you want to do an international payment, it's powered by WISE. Accounting platforms like Xero, powered by WISE. Stripe, use us for payments in the UK and in Europe, as well as payroll platforms like Gusto and Deal. And didn't you have to build essentially a new company within WISE to offer that? Because selling to enterprises is very different than, you know, word of mouth for 70% of new clients, right? Maybe take us to that process. Yeah, so you're totally right. I mean, this isn't a word of mouth sale, meaning 70% of our platform customers didn't hear about WISE from a friend, unfortunately. 
there is a sales motion and a sales team involved. Taking a step back just before I go into how we did it, why did we do it? That's a good question. So I realized that everyone in the world isn't going to download our app. So the people are still going to be using banks and other platforms, and we should be there where the payment is happening. The Wise platform is the fastest growing product at Wise. It's growing really, really fast. And as a consequence, we believe in the future is quite distant. So like probably in the 10 years kind of horizon, the majority of our volume will come in via our API. And the only reason it takes that long is because the other business is still growing at 50%, right? So it takes a while for it to catch it up and, and get past it. How do we do it? It's a sales motion. So it's quite cool, actually. So myself, Christo, the founder, our CTO, we all take sales calls. <laughs> we all work through with our end customers, their problems, and we try to figure out how to iterate our API solution to help ever larger and larger customers on board to WISE. We built out now a sales team. It's quite interesting at this stage. Every sale is different and every sales motion requires some form of, you call it business development, but really product development. And you have to have quite a deep understanding of the compliance landscape, the operations at both ends to be able to get something like this to land. It's not a turnkey SaaS sale. We're quite far away from that. And that's kind of cool because it's, it means this is a, it's very, a very difficult solution to sell even when you have a high quality product like Wise, but also hopefully means that once we're uh, integrated with our partners, we'll be in it for the long term with them as well. And, and then, like you, you mentioned, and I know you we're bouncing around a little bit, this is all interesting. I know you mentioned earlier anti-fraud being an important pillar of what you do. And I guess anti-fraud practices and fraud, they're, they're always evolving. Right, and then so you have to be on top of me. Tell us about how anti-fraud has evolved within Wise over the last decade. So as you get bigger, the attack surface gets broader and more people find you, basically, over time. In the early days, when we were just money transfer, we didn't store money on Wise. So there's only so much you could do with somebody else's account from a fraud perspective. And the biggest problems then were people using, say, trying to use stolen credit cards on Wise, stolen debit cards to send money. So we got, we started getting pretty good from those days at identifying when that was happening and, and bringing down the fraud costs and the fraud rates. Um, part of the reason we're so cheap is because we've managed to keep our fraud costs all the way down, realized fraud costs. When we got on to having offering accounts to customers, we really tightened up the perimeter. We started off with two-factor authentication, but now we're at the point where we are beginning to biometrically identify whether that really is you, Miguel, logging in from all the different characteristics from where you are to how fast you're typing to whether you pause at certain keystrokes when you're entering your password, which gives us an additional signal on whether this is a, a fraudster trying to hack into your account. The cool thing with this is we, we've actually got confident enough uh, with some of these extra checks that we can remove in some cases to FA, if you feel like it, if we're confident it's you. So we're getting pretty good at that. We have a fun thing where we, we obviously have a bug bounty program, but we also employ hackers to try to actually hack it twice. 
and they, they get really inventive and we have lots of fun there as well but constantly trying to understand what are the areas in our perimeter we need to reinforce and ensure that we're keeping our customers money safe hopefully that gives you some color of some of the things we've had to invest in as we become larger yeah no it reminds me of this quote from max Levchin, of course co-founder of a paypal firm in the book the founders and and he was saying you know building a payment system of course that's not easy but the hardest part is really figuring out for fraud right like being building an anti-fraud machinery because otherwise the, the payment system will not work right tell us a little bit also about your your new bank right and how it differs wises neobank from the rest of the industry because correct me if i'm wrong but you have about 10 billion british pounds of assets is that correct yeah that's right yeah so yeah as i said earlier and touched on earlier we like to think of it as the world's best international account so let's just take a step back i think that you know there are pretty good domestic neobanks emerging in every market around the world, New Bank to Monzo to N26. Some of them haven't quite yet got business models yet, <laughs> but are profitable and well capitalized, solved all of that. But they're all on a journey, on the journey to get there. And they're, you know, providing the incumbents a good challenge around what a great digital experience looks like and the redefining the norm for consumers around the world. So that, that's great. Many of them partner with us. The question for Wise is where. Like, should we have a, a similar offering and why? So the bit here we lean on heavily is the fact that we're international by default. And so the question is, the assets we've built up, is there a reason where that would be a competitive advantage and help us solve specific customer pain points? So taking this a little bit further, there aren't any real global banks. So let me try to talk, talk this through. At one end of the scale, you've got banks like HSBC or Citibank. HSBC has deep local integrations. HSBC will have a bank account generally with the central bank and every market operates it. But it also has a different core banking system in every market it operates in. So that when you try to open a bank account with HSBC and you're in one country and then you move to another country, you have to open another bank account. <laughs> you're moving money between HSBC bank accounts and they're completely different things. So you have, let's call them the incumbents, which have deep local integration and a siloed local tech stacks. The other end of scale, you've got technology companies like, say, PayPal. And PayPal has a single global tech stack, but very light local integration. So it doesn't have any central bank integration. And you can see it's very expensive as a consequence. And in the middle, you've got WISE. And in WISE, we have deep local integrations and a single global tech stack. And what this does is it gives us a, a competitive advantage. So let me just talk you through it. So with WISE, we have a single onboarding flow to give you an account, whether you're in Brazil or you're in Australia. So no one's ever done this. There's one single code base for doing this. Now, take a step back and try to imagine... If you had to design an onboarding flow for a global bank, you would have to go to every single country around the world, get all their regulatory requirements, try and figure out how you push them together. And if you try to do this in a waterfall manner, it'll take you years to get to a design. 
with WISE, our organization structure, the way we've tried to come up with it, supports us with as discovering what that code should look like. So we have a central code base for our onboarding boarding firm or owned by a central onboarding team. But I also have a team in Australia and a team in Brazil. And those teams are trying to, A, they were trying to launch WISE, and B, trying to improve the flow for these customers. And they're committing code changes back to that central flow. So that central flow is getting the learnings, and from that emerges like a highly performant onboarding flow that works anywhere in the world. And then when you think through how efficient that will be at onboarding customers around the world, you start understanding, okay, so we're able to onboard customers that have international needs better than anyone else because then we can use our infrastructure. Taking a step back now and zooming into the customer base where we're focused on, I break the market down into two. So at one end of the scale, you have customers that have 100% domestic needs. They never, ever send money internationally or receive money internationally. They should never use WISE. At the other end of the scale are customers who every single payment involves a conversion. So let me talk you through this group. This is if I live in Singapore and I'm paid in USD, then all my payments out in Singapore dollars, but my salary's coming in in USD. Or I'm a freelancer and I'm living in Greece, but my customers are in Japan. Again, every single payment goes through that. And because we save customers so much money on the conversion and we have such a great proposition for receiving money internationally and spending money internationally with our WISE account, they should be using WISE. And then in the middle are customers who have some international leads. That could be 5%, 10%, 15%, 80% of their, of their turnover. And as you go up this scale, their propensity to be a WISE customer increases. So hopefully that explains a bit about the infrastructure we've got, how we've built it, and the customers we target, and why they use WISE. It certainly does. Certainly does. No, you 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 advise a lot of fintechs. When you're talking to early stage founders who are, you know, at, at the stage when you got involved with WISE, you know, just a couple of people, a, a spreadsheet, and, and a dog, right? What do you share about your philosophy of how to build a fintech, how to grow a company? So generally, um, two bits. One is I try not to share my philosophy because it's very confusing. <laughs> and I try to help them with the problems that they have. There's a one bit of philosophy I'll come back to, I'll cover in a sec, uh, that I, I always share, but generally I try not to. The bit I try to zoom in on with them is most fintechs, most founders, like the generic problem is getting excited by trying to build a big business or trying to build some tech as opposed to getting very crisply clear on a problem they're solving and making sure, understanding how is the problem currently being solved and then really making sure they're solving it so much better that people are going to get over the inertia of downloading another app, using it, and ideally recommending it to their friends. I'm just zooming them in on, is the product good enough to actually do that? Because you can always build a product that solves the same problem maybe the same, maybe slightly better, but is it good enough that someone's just going to switch? And helping 
them get clear on that as a goal and then helping them ideate around how to do that is where I spend most of my time. The only piece of advice I give them and it's something I'm very passionate about is the key to growth is this, is product, as opposed to marketing. So I spent a lot of my life growing businesses, spending a lot of money on marketing and I definitely know, know a few tricks and we've used a lot of those here at Wise as well. But really for early stage companies, marketing is a distraction and every minute the founder spends on, I'm going to grow the business 10, like 3x by ads. While you can do that, it is time you're not spending on how do I make the product so much better that people will use it and recommend it. And the return on time and the return on capital invested on the product side is so, so much higher than on the marketing side that founders should really spend their time over here. Just it's dangerous to generalize, but that's the one piece of very strong advice I give because there's founders generally get quite, normally want to talk to me around how do we grow up their business. And normally they're asking for marketing tricks and I, I kind of steer away from this in the early stages. So going forward, just to end it on, on, a, on a note about the future, you know, what has you the most excited about, you know, the next couple of years or for WISE and, and I guess also for the industry? Right now, the bit I'm personally working through and we've been working through probably for the last year is enabling our customers to earn a return on their investments at WISE. We have two or three products out there at the moment. We have a partnership with JPM in the US where customers hold the money with JPM and it's FDIC insured and they get a pass-through interest rate, which is pretty cool. In Europe, we have permission to pass with our current license interest directly back to customers, which is pretty cool. But probably most excitingly, we've built an asset-backed current account. So it's quite a mouthful, but nothing like this really exists out there. So imagine you could take your bank balance and convert it to government bonds, short 10-year government bonds. And then as you spend your money, it sells off government bonds. Government bonds are the closest to a risk-free return you can get. Because a government bond will only default if a government defaults. And governments very rarely run out of money. They just tend to print more money, right? So it's a really good indication of the actual value of the currency you're holding is the overnight rate and central bank. So we're working really hard to try to figure out how to get central bank access for our customers. But what was easier to do was to enable them to invest in their government bonds. Uh, and we're live with this now in the UK, in about three to four markets in Europe, in Singapore, it's a great product, incredible uptake uh, we're seeing. The hard bits were that when you spend with your card, it dynamically sells what you need to cover it. So it's pretty cool. The hard bit and uh, the bit that makes it clunky that we're working through is that from a regulatory perspective, it comes under brokering and dealering. So you kind of have to go through some of the flows of understanding the risks involved with this, et cetera. But we want this to feel like a, a current account. And let's also contrast this to how banks build current accounts and how they offer interest to their customers. So that's generally by taking your deposits and lending it out under the fractional reserve system, earning a return, and then passing some of that return back to you. And the difference is, the, is their, what they call their net interest margin. 
And obviously what we're interested in is um, banks also get, get money from the central bank at the overnight rate. And again, keep most of it and pass only a little bit back to you. So the disruption here is to give the end user access to the central bank rate directly. And so I don't think I've seen anyone else do this yet. I think loads of people are going to do this in the wake of SBB as customers are getting clearer on where their money's being held and wanting to be held safely for a risk-free return. But this is something that really excites me about WISE and about the industry in general. It's to make, um, I guess, sovereign bonds as liquid as cash, essentially. That's basically it, yeah. And it was interesting that as an end user, you don't get access to these in funds, and but we can leverage our scale to get this and then pass this back to the end user. Well, Nila, again, can't thank you enough for joining. A super interesting conversation. I'll let you know, you know, on, on the feedback, but I'm sure I will need to because I'm sure you'll get a lot of good feedback out of it. Thanks for your time, Miguel. Thanks for tuning in, and I hope you enjoyed this great episode with Neil and Paris, Chief Product Officer at Wise. If you want more interviews, make sure to subscribe, follow, and leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your shows. It helps and means a lot. And if you have any suggestions or thoughts about the show, please drop me a line on Twitter or LinkedIn. Signing off till next week, I'm your host, Miguel Armasa.